We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about science communication. Science communication is defined as public communication of science-related topics to non-experts, i.e. me. Both of our stories today were recorded at our January 2018 show at Caveat, our home in New York City. Believe it or not, the theme that night was communication. Our first story is from Judith Stone. When I was a kid, I showed no detectable aptitude for science, but I was very enthusiastic until the fifth grade when I entered the school science fair. My not very pioneering project was a cutaway view of our Earth built in an old aquarium with layers of sand dyed different colors and labeled. But I was a little late in applying the food coloring to the sand, so it was still wet on the day of the science fair. And the red of the core and the yellow of the mantle and the brown of the crust all ran together, causing one of my teachers to quip within my hearing, huh, first time anyone ever entered lasagna in a science fair. <laughs> I was humiliated and it was over between me and science. In college, I took the two required science courses pass-fail, and I'm not particularly proud to report that I passed geology by writing an epic poem about lateral moraines. <laughs> As a young adult, I was uninterested in technology and intimidated by math, and I was given to making wise-ass remarks such as, if God had wanted us to use the metric system, she would have given us 10 fingers and 10 toes. Nevertheless, my first big job in magazine publishing was as a senior editor at Science Digest. The editor-in-chief hired me as his specimen humanities person. I believe he thought that if I understood an article, any idiot in America would understand it. And I believe that because he said that. <laughs> Jokingly. Ish. I had doubts about my ability to do the job given my lack of background, but things went very well. The women and men of science who featured in the articles I wrote or edited were wonderfully generous about discussing their work. And I really did my homework because I wanted to ask sensible questions. I was getting the science education I missed the first time around. I was very excited about what I was learning, and my confidence rose. 
Eventually, Science Digest was killed and eaten by Discover Magazine. <laughs> and I became a contributing editor at Discover with a nice new boss. And though I sometimes still ask myself what I was doing writing for a Science Magazine, luckily, though I did some serious pieces on subjects ranging from uh, astronomy to genetics, my chief task at the magazine was writing the monthly humor column, Light Elements, which was a mix of gravity and levity. It was a heavily reported piece, but about the wackier reaches of science. So, for example, I wrote about a psychology professor at Duke University who studies the effects of smells on mood and behavior. And she had been hired by an undisclosed client to come up with a fragrance that could be sprayed in New York City subway cars to increase friendliness and reduce commuter aggression. <laughs> I, I told her I thought her best bet was chloroform. <laughs> so one day, my boss asked me to write about a problem that NASA was facing and the interesting fix they were pursuing. This was a couple of years before the International Space Station was to be assembled and then inhabited. And officials at NASA were concerned about possible culture conflicts among the international partners, the US, uh, Japan, Canada, and the European Space Agency, initially uh, Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Italy. Uh, so for the first time ever in NASA's history, they'd hired an anthropologist to look into the matter and pinpoint potential pitfalls so they could be avoided. Dr. Mary Lozano and a colleague had given extensive interviews to the astronauts and their teams, and they'd done interviewing. The Russians were going to be partners in the space station, but they weren't part of this inquiry. Dr. Lozano wanted to know what the concerns of the international astronauts were. And she was especially interested in whether they had any preconceived notions about people of other nationalities. She had gathered some interesting preliminary data, and she was ready to share it with Discover. In the first of many phone conversations that we had, she was in LA, I was in New York, she gave me some highlights from her findings. The Americans thought the Germans would be pompous, the Italians would be emotional, and the French would be arrogant. Everyone else thought the Americans would be arrogant. <laughs> the Italians worried that their colleagues, especially the Americans, would challenge their opinions and they'd be forced to defend these opinions, which they considered uh, a violation of privacy. The Canadians were concerned that everyone would automatically assume that they were just like the Americans. <laughs> and the French were afraid no one else would take the food seriously. In this first conversation, Dr. Lozano delivered some caveats. This is a very delicate situation, she said. You really have to be sensitive. If you were to insult any of the international partners, it would be terrible. I assured her that I would proceed with the utmost sensitivity, and, and I meant it, 
But my mandate was the poking of fun, and her findings were certainly a gift to anybody writing a humor column. <laughs> so I wrote the piece, and it went through fact-checking. The uh, magazine had a lead time of a couple of months. And during that period, Dr. Lozano started to get cold feet. At one point, she asked me to completely call off the story. I told her it was too late for that. And I assured her that she had nothing to worry about. Yet, worry she did. And as she grew increasingly anxious, every phone call was a variation on, I hope you were sensitive. I hope you haven't insulted anyone. It would be a disaster. I assured her that everything was going to be fine. But I was terrified. I hadn't said anything really horrible, but I'd been pretty hard on the French. <laughs> the lead was, the Japanese think American-style split-second decision-making is dangerous. The Americans think the Japanese preference for protracted deliberation could be lethal in an emergency. The Italians are worried about their privacy, and I'm afraid the French are going to make everyone watch Jerry Lewis movies. <laughs> it, it doesn't get any cheaper than that, except that I also made a crack about... Um, French astronauts arguing about what wine goes with space food sticks and other cracks of, of that ilk. I, my, my confidence plummeted, and I went back to thinking, what is a person like me doing writing about science when the stakes are so high? I could vividly picture the disaster that Dr. Lozano had warned me about. I imagined the Japanese and the Europeans withdrawing from the space station in outrage. I, I didn't think the Canadians would say anything because they're so nice. <laughs> I was actually worried about the space station itself because it wasn't too many years earlier that creepy Senator William Proxmire had mocked NASA's search for extraterrestrial intelligence and he had actually gotten Congress to defund the program. And I thought, oh my God, what if my stupid, rude column, you know, I thought things were funny when I wrote them, but by now I thought they were incredibly rude and incredibly stupid. What if my stupid, rude column gets the space station defunded? I was miserable. The second we got first bound copies of the issue back from the printer, I FedExed one to Dr. Lozano. This was in the days when my wood-burning computer had no scanning <laughs> capability. And I spent a horrible night. Uh, I was sure that I had set the American space program back by several decades, or perhaps destroyed NASA. And I tossed and turned, and I thought, what made you think you could write for Discover Magazine? You entered lasagna in the science fair. The next day, just after 10 a.m. California time, my phone rang, and it was Dr. Lozano, and she was happy. <laughs> Thank you, she said. Thank you for being sensitive. Thank you for not insulting anybody. It's, it's accurate. It's amusing. I'm so relieved. Me too. 
I was so, so relieved. After we hung up, I started thinking about what she had said. Thank you for not insulting anybody. And I realized that besides giving me the gift of peace of mind, she had bestowed another boon, a a nugget of life wisdom that could be a mantra in times of trial, and it's this. When in doubt, trash the French because nobody cares. (laughs) Still, I I was really shaken by what I thought was a, a, a close call, and I had deep lingering doubts about whether I had the skill to cover science uh, the way it deserved to be covered. A few months after the space station story ran and NASA remained intact, to my great joy, I was interviewing Dr. Neil Postman, the brilliant and much-missed media ecologist and social critic, the author of Amusing Ourselves to Death and other fabulous books, and he said, Being scientifically literate isn't just about knowing the current complicated facts about some branch of science. It's knowing how scientists think and how they solve problems. It's understanding the scientific method at its most basic, coming up up with a hypothesis and testing it through systematic comparative study. It's knowing what evidence is and how to evaluate it. And then he said, you know, the great tool for dealing with the world is asking questions. Now there was a nugget of life wisdom. Simple, profound, reassuring, very moving, I thought, and empowering. I could ask questions. I knew how. I was already doing it. I would never, ever be an expert in matters scientific. But I could be a conscientious amateur asking good questions. And so, ever after, when I'm in a cloud of unknowing, and my confidence is flagging, and I'm not sure how to proceed, I think about Dr. Postman's words, and though I would much rather take the easy way out and just trash the French, (laughs) instead I say to myself, Isn't this the right time to start asking good questions? Thanks. That was Judith Stone. Judith is the author of Light Elements, Essays on Science from Gravity to Levity, a collection of her award-winning columns from Discover magazine. Her book, When She Was White, The True Story of a Family Divided by Race, was named one of the Washington Post's annual Top 100 books. She was on the founding board of The Moth and is currently an instructor in The Moth's community outreach program. So uh, before we move on to our next story, you know who else is great at communicating science? One of our favorite podcasts, Science for the People. Science for the People features long-form interviews with scientists and science writers covering issues where science meets your life. For example, what will the city you live in look like in the future? Where do we get our weather forecasts? Why don't we know anything about menopause if half the human population goes through it? All very good questions. And every week, Science for the People talks with the experts about these issues and more. 
One of their most recent episodes, which I find very interesting, is about the sense of smell and why some smells are universally considered to be good or bad and why some are dependent on personal or cultural preferences. So check it out. Science for the People, available on iTunes and pretty much wherever you find Story Collider. Our second story today is from Anna Freeman. As I said earlier, this one was also recorded at Caveat in New York City in January 2018. The theme that night was communication. All right, so I work in humanitarian aid, and I work for Doctors Without Borders, which we usually call by its French acronym, which is MSF. And I did my first assignment 10 years ago, and I was very young, and like many young people, I was very naive and very optimistic about what I was going to be able to do. And I went to Eastern Congo, and I worked in a trauma hospital uh, for six months. And when I came home to North Carolina, I um, was totally devastated by the experience. I was just so sad and so angry and so frustrated. And most of all, I was really ashamed by what I couldn't do. Um, In face of this humanitarian crisis, I felt like what I could offer was so insignificant. And so I thought, um, I will never, ever do that again. And so I started working again as a nurse in North Carolina. And over the following couple of years, I I ended up doing a couple more assignments with MSF. And I found that with time and with experience, I was able to kind of um, manage those feelings and do this work that I really loved and I really cared about, but also take care of myself. So I started working full time for MSF and worked in a lot of different places around the world and a lot of challenging settings. And then last year, I got a call asking if I would go to Syria to do an evaluation of a hospital that MSF runs. And um, I'll give you some information about this hospital and where it is in Syria. So um, as I'm sure you are aware, there's been a multi-year civil war in Syria. And in this part of the country where the hospital is located, there are a lot of people who have been displaced. So they've fled their homes uh, because of violence and are living in camps. So they're living, what that looks like is that extended families live together in um, canvas tents and they have poor access to things like water and electricity. And for cooking, people use uh, basically like camping stoves with unrefined fuel. And unrefined fuel is very unstable, and so it's very explosive. And what happens uh, often is that the stoves will explode and cause a fire. And so the hospital that I was being asked to evaluate is a hospital that treats explicitly or um, only patients who have burns that come from either these kind of cooking accidents or from things like shelling. And um, when I accepted to go do this evaluation, What was explained to me was that this part of Syria is very, very unsafe, and it's actually too unsafe for MSF to send international staff there. So there's a Syrian staff that runs this hospital, and then there's a support team of international staff in a neighboring country in the Middle East that provides support to the hospital. So they said, you know, you're going to go to this neighboring country and you're going to do your review, what we call cross-border, so um, remotely from from this other country. So that's what I set off to do. 
And I get, uh, I get there, and I find that the team has set all this stuff up for me. So they've hired a translator named Noor, who will work with me, and there are like boxes and boxes of documents for me to use in my evaluation. And they've got a computer with Skype, which is the best, most reliable way to talk to the field team. So Noor, he starts translating all these documents for me, and the first thing that I do is I go through the emergency department um, logbook, where all the patients are, are listed. And I'm thinking that this will help me understand the activity in the hospital to get a feel for what, you know, what they're doing and what it's like. And what I find is that this logbook actually really gives me an idea of what it's like to live in this part of Syria. Because every time there's an attack in the area, I can see that in the book because there will be a bunch of patients who come with traumatic burns. Or every time there are new people who come from a different part of Syria who have fled, I can see that in the book as well because they, there's a new camp that appears. So I'm getting this idea of what it's like to live there. And meanwhile, Noor and I are um, talking to the team in the field and setting up interviews with different staff, and it's going terribly. The connection is so bad, we can barely talk to anybody. We can hardly hear with Skype. It's just a nightmare. And I'm hit with all of the same feelings that I had when I came back from the Congo of feeling so sad. And I'm, I'm reading about what it's like to live there. And all I can offer is like the world's worst phone call. I mean, it's, it's a terrible, terrible feeling. I was so ashamed that I couldn't do more. Uh, but of course, you know, we press on and we're trying to figure out a way to make this work. And um, so Noor and I realized that for us to best communicate with the field team that we will use this computer with Skype and we'll, we have to use earphones to hear. So he and I are sitting next to each other, like sharing an ear, an earphone, you know, like this. And, um, you know, it's connected to the computer, of course. And we're like making full body contact going down the side, which is pretty uncomfortable in a Middle Eastern context. So we're both like, you know, talking like, you know, it's, it's terrible. It's really uncomfortable. And Noor has his computer open as well because he has a translation software since even though his English was fantastic. Um, he didn't have a full me medical vocabulary. So while translating, he's like also looking words up on the on his software. And I've got my phone with WhatsApp, which is um, what I'm using every time Skype fails, which is like every five seconds. I'm texting the team and saying, you know, stand by, we're calling you back or whatever. So it's, you know, this is what we find we can kind of work with. And we're interviewing all these people in this in the hospital. And um, we start to interview somebody named Weil, who's a physical therapist for the, for the team. And um, burn patients, especially people who have really serious burns, they need a lot of rehabilitation. So it's like, it can be like 12 to 18 months worth of physical therapy. It's a long, long time. And in order to have that, we're asking these patients to come back to the hospital two or three times a week. And so I'm talking to Weil and I'm saying, are, you know, how are we making sure that happens? What are we doing to make sure our patients can come back for all this long time? And I'm really pushing him on this subject. And I'm saying, I'm basically saying, like, are we doing enough? Are you doing good enough to make sure that this happens? And I'm, I'm really pushing him. And finally, he says, Habibi, which this means like my dear in Arabic. He says, we're doing everything we can, but we can never do enough for our patients because we can't take away their burns. And that comment really sticks with me. And Noor and I, we continue our interviews. And the next day, we're interviewing somebody called Jihan, who is a counselor for the hospital. 
we're talking to her and for once the connection is actually pretty good. So the conversation is like flowing and we're, we're talking. And, um, I realized that Jihan, like all of our staff, she is living in this area. So she's exposed to all of these same traumas with the attacks and the population shifts and displacement and all of these things that our patients are exposed to. She's also living. But then in addition to that, as the counselor, she absorbs all of our patients' stories all day, every day. She's hearing about their trauma and their loss and their grief. And I think that must be so hard. And so I say that to her. And I say, Jihan, how, you know, how do you take care of yourself? You're so exposed. So what do you do for your own mental health? And <clears throat> Jihan says, well, <laughs> Skype froze. And I was so frustrated. And I turned to Noor to say, you know, look, okay, what are we going to do? And Noor stops me and he says, I think she's crying. And I realized that he was right. Um, Skype actually hadn't frozen. She was silent because she was trying to compose herself. And finally, she says, No one's ever asked me that before. And I've never thought about my own mental health. And I realized that talking to Yael and talking to Jihan, we were just people talking to each other. And even though you know, we could sometimes barely hear each other, or there was the translation, we were just two human beings talking. And then I got to the end of my evaluation, and it was almost time for me to go. And I offered to the team to do kind of a debriefing or like give them feedback on my, on my review before I left to go back to the States. So I asked the nursing director if he could set up a time that we could do this. And um, so his name is Abdul Malik. And I said to him, you know, this is not mandatory. I'm, you know, people can come if they want to. They don't have to come. And so he sets it up and we get everything ready to go. And um, he had this good idea of he took a picture of the room and sent it to me through WhatsApp because we couldn't use the video on Skype. So I we're about to start and I open WhatsApp and I have this picture and this room is just jam packed with people. And I'm thinking like, oh, God, they probably all felt like they had to come to this evaluation because somebody is here from headquarters that's reviewing them. So I've got Abdul Malik on the phone and I say, um, you know, this is wonderful, and I'm so glad everybody is here, but I hope that nobody felt pressured to come. And he says, well, Anna, for one thing, you know, we all want to provide the best care that we can for our patients, um, so we all want to be here to hear what you have to say. And then he says, but more than that, when people like you come and work with us, we know that the world hasn't forgotten us. Thank you. That was Anna Freeman. Anna is a nurse and quality improvement specialist at Doctors Without Borders. She has worked in humanitarian response in 10 countries over the past 10 years, focusing on refugee health, infectious disease, and quality of care. Anna is an excellent dancer, an enthusiastic fumbler in any foreign language, and one of the world's worst surfers. So before I sign off today, I want to remind you guys that our next show at Caveat in New York City will be our first ever fundraiser in honor of the Story Collider's eighth birthday on May 1st. 
It will be hosted by myself and best-selling science writer Ed Yong, and will feature amazing guests such as journalist Ariel Duhame Ross, comedian Josh Gondelman, and Joe Handelsman, who will share with us her experience working as an associate director for science under President Obama in the White House. We're going to have an amazing time, all while raising money so we can bring our show to new places and continue to find and elevate new perspectives about science. Tickets are on sale now, and you can get them at storycliter.org. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barger, that's me, with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from a show produced by me, Aaron Barker, and Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting this show, and to everyone out there communicating science to non-experts like me, don't give up on us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.